Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hi, I'm Bob Schrum, back to introduce our final panel and to thank all of you who've been with us all day. Our moderator is Alex Michelson, who co-anchors Fox 11 News, co-hosts the Fox 11 Special Report, hosts and produces the political talk show statewide called The Issue Is. He's the winner of six Emmy Awards, an alum of USC, finished first in his class, by the way, and has interviewed nearly every key political figure, including Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and Gavin Newsom, and a whole lot more besides. In fact, he interviewed Larry Elder during the recall campaign. So I'm going to turn this over to you. You can introduce the panel, and let's go. And of course, the best interview is with Bob Schrum, who's a frequent guest with us as well. Bob, thank you very much. And uh, of course, the most important part of that bio is a a proud USC alum. Fight on to all the Trojans that are on here as well. Um, And we're going to use part of this uh, discussion on our political show. The issue is uh, tonight, which airs on Friday nights at 1030 on Fox 11 if you're in L.A. and all over the state at the issueisshow.com has airtimes. All right, enough plugs. Uh, let's do quick intros to everybody because everybody here is so big, you already know who they are. Uh, Chris Matthews is with us, Mr. Hardball himself. He hosted Hardball for 20 years on MSNBC and CNBC. He's the author of so many books, including Hardball and uh, so many others. Uh, great to see him again. Uh, David Chalian is here, the political director of CNN, which means he basically runs their entire political operation on TV and online, which is one of the biggest and most robust political operations in the world. Uh, Jessica Milan Patterson is with us. Great to see her. Uh, one of our frequent guests on the issue is uh, she is the chairperson of the California Republican Party. And Ron Christie is here as well uh, from Christie. Uh, he has his own consulting company, uh, is a veteran of the Bush White House, worked uh, as a special advisor to former President Bush, also uh, worked closely with Dick Cheney, is a veteran of the cable news wars as well. Um, and has done a lot of important work over the years. We've got a fantastic panel. And uh, our, our topic today, if you can believe it, we're one year away this week from the midterms. So a year from now, we'll probably be having uh, lots of disputes about voter fraud and one side or the other are, are, are going to be talking about cheating. Uh, but uh, who knows what's going to happen in the, in the year ahead. Um, but we know it's going to be expensive and it's going to be important. Uh, and there are a lot of things on the line in terms of where we're at. So we want to assess where we are as a country, where each party is, talk maybe a little bit about what happened in Virginia and New Jersey, what that tells us about where the electorate is, and, and hear from some of these pros in terms of advice on what they, we think we should be looking at this year. So let's start uh, with the great Chris Matthews, um, one of my inspirations, um, who I remember when he came to USC and brought hardball to USC, which was very exciting. I attended that uh, when I was a student. Uh, Chris, where do you see the state of the 2022 race right now? Well, I think both sides know what it's going to look like. It's going to be difficult for the incumbent party, the president's party. Uh, they have a narrow, if you might say, fragile majority in, in both houses. I think everyone's expecting the House to go Republican next time and the Senate to be up in the air. Of course, I don't know, I'm not sure to get back to a point you made a moment ago. 
I'm not sure how many really open seats there are in the Senate. I mean, I, I don't see a lot of opportunities to shift it. But basically, we're looking at a rotation situation. Winston Churchill, one of my heroes, said that uh, never defend the government in a by-election because everything people have, they don't like the weather, they don't like their marital situation, they don't like anything. They blame everything on the incumbent administration, the government. And so if people don't like if people don't like inflation, who does? We're very sensitive to inflation in this country, almost like Germans. We don't like it. It's there. It's going to be there, according to the Treasury Secretary, through fourth quarter of next year. So it'll be there in the election. Uh, we've got a, cr- a crime situation, which came about, it could be argued, from uh, defund the police and the overkill in the other direction from Black Lives Matter, just going too far in the other direction. Uh, warp speed, you might argue. That I think is, is getting an opportunity. I think the Republicans have three to four issues that they've already gunned up. One is uh, critical race theory, or however they that defines just about anything you don't like about the revisionist theory of, uh, of how race has played a role in our history, which it clearly has. Uh, I think uh, uh, socialism in the government, too much government spending, which leads to inflation, they will argue. Uh, open borders. I think you've got about at least three or four issues there. And this goes back to original. 1940s Los Angeles thinking. Murray Chotner, who was Richard Nixon's first advisor, said, make sure, well, first of all, he said, here's my premise. The voter maxes out with three thoughts as he or she goes to vote. Make sure all three of those thoughts are about the opponent and make sure all three are negative. And the first classic example of that was 1952, communism, Korea, and corruption. And then 72, as, as Bob knows this, it was amnesty, acid, and abortion. This time around, it's going to be some combination of uh, open borders, uh, critical race theory, uh, crime, defund uh, the police. They've got a lot, a lot of catchphrases, that, and they're going to run them into about three. Three seems to be the magic number for nasty comments about the opponents. Add to that, I think it's going to be a loss in the House of about 30 seats. That's what I think. I just looked at the 50 and 60 of the last... Democrats offer a, jet, a big positive agenda when they come into office. A lot of things they want to do, they've been waiting to do for decades, they do them or try to. That's true with Bill Clinton. That's true with Barack Obama. That makes enemies. Machiavelli told us coming in with new things is always going to have problems because people are more comfortable with the old. They're scared of the new. Republicans just come in and cut taxes, which doesn't offend a lot of people. It offends some people on the left, but most people it doesn't bother. So they don't take the risk. So I would say it's a tough year. I would say the Senate and the House will probably both go to the Republicans after next November. Yeah, if you think about here in California, what you're talking about defining your opponent, that's something that Governor Newsom was able to effectively do, make it more about Larry Elder than make it uh, necessarily about his record. Uh, They changed the narrative of that. It's part of the reason why they were so successful here. Um, And Jessica and I could talk about that for a very long time. But before we do that, uh, let's go to, to David Chalian. Do you agree with Chris? I mean, where do you see broadly where things are at right now? He's predicting, you know, 30 seats, potentially uh, a majority for, you know, then speaker Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, no, I I mean, I I certainly agree with Chris's assessment that uh, you're heading into an election environment in 2022 that is advantage Republicans, advantage uh, to the party out of power. And when you're dealing with such narrow majority, Nancy Pelosi has a three vote margin that she's dealing with in the house and the senate's evenly divided obviously uh both of them are up for grabs and uh to chris's point about the senate you know you're basically looking i think at um now that 
the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Nunu, has decided not to get into that race. Uh, you're, you're basically looking at five states that will determine uh, control of the United States Senate uh, in Nevada and Arizona and Georgia, uh, where Democrats are trying to hold, and then where Republicans are going to try to hold some seats in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Those, those five states uh, will probably determine uh, control of, of the U.S. Senate, uh, but clearly uh, advantage from today's perspective uh, for Republicans uh, to win the House. History would certainly suggest that, though I think we've all learned that history is only so good a guide in, in today's modern American politics anymore. But what I think is important uh, about 22 that we could learn a little bit from last week's elections in Virginia and New Jersey there are actual still movable swing voters. Yes, we live in very polarized times, and politics is always going to be a both-end proposition, not an either-or proposition. You've got to jazz up your base, and you've got to persuade the middle. You need that, that combination uh, to win. And, I mean, if you just look at Virginia, uh, Joe Biden uh, and his Democratic Party, with Terry McAuliffe uh, on the top of the ticket there, they lost the middle. I mean, you're talking about uh, Joe Biden just a year ago won independent voters in Virginia by 19 percentage points. Glenn Youngkin just won them by nine percentage points. That's a 28 point swing to the Republicans among independents. Uh, you saw similar in New Jersey. And uh, this this is a significant problem because uh, if you're not going to have record turnout on your base, uh, and you're losing the middle, uh, and you're the party in power, That those are big warning signs. Now, I just want to, the one thing I would just caution is we don't, uh, yes, the Treasury Secretary has said inflation may be with us through much of next year. Um, there's a lot being poured into this economy. If indeed that inflationary pressure uh, goes away at some point next year, and the economy is on fire in a way that Americans feel it, it may mitigate Maybe it's not a 30-seat loss. Maybe it's something uh, more narrow than that. Uh, but, you know, if indeed this moment of inflation is still with us next year, um, you could really see a potential uh, much bigger loss for the Democrats than, than perhaps on paper uh, looks possible right now with the way that the map is. Jessica, we know that California um, is the home to swing districts, even if the state uh, is so democratic as a whole. There's a lot of swing districts right now. Those districts are being with redrawn. We don't know exactly what they're going to look like. We'll know that by the end of the year, which could change how the races look. But what is your strategy going into next year? And, and more broadly, where do you see the state of the race? Well, certainly right now, I'd much rather be a Republican than a Democrat. Um, we talked a little bit off camera about bringing hope. And I think that this that's what this panel is talking about, the hope that we could have um, some change and some checks and balances going into 2022. Um, we will not see in California um, what exactly those lines look like until the end of December. But I think House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy said it best. If you are a Democrat in a seat that Joe Biden won by 16 points, you are now in a targeted seat. And here in California, that adds on six more seats in addition to the four that we picked up in the last cycle. So I think it puts us in a very good position. Obviously, redistricting will shovel, uh, move some of this stuff around. But nationwide, I actually think we pick up the house with redistricting alone because that margin is the smallest margin it's been for about 100 years. Ron, where do you see the state of the race? 
Well, good afternoon to you and good afternoon to everybody who's watching uh, us here in Los Angeles and around the, in the country. I think this is really a parable for me of 2009. Uh, 2009, after the 2008 elections, the Democrats came in. They passed a sweeping uh, health care reform measure, and the American people took stock of that and said, maybe the government's trying to do too much too soon. And of course, we saw what happened in the 2010 election cycle, 63 seats uh, flipped from the Democrats to the Republicans, and President Obama at the time famously said that they've been shellacked. I think we're going to see a shellacking next year. I think the shellacking is people are looking at a 3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill that's been whittled down to two point something, maybe it'll be one point something trillion in the end. But I have a sense that people are tired of mask mandates. They're tired of the way that they are being treated um, by those in power. And you've seen this not just in Virginia, you know, famously with Glenn Youngkin, but the race that really got me was the state Senate president, the longest state Senate president in the state of New Jersey, was unseated by a truck driver who ran an ad that was shot by his nephew's friend on an iPhone, uh, spent less than $5,000 and was able to unseat a powerful Democrat. If Republicans are able to do this with minimal money and minimal effort and projecting a positive and an optimistic message, as Youngkin certainly did, uh, if I were a Democrat and I had a D attached to my name, I'd start thinking about all the things that I could deliver for the American people, as opposed to saying, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. I, I don't think that is going to fly uh, in the midterm, and I don't think that's going to fly in the general unless the 45th president jumps in. But the Republicans have an opportunity to seize an optimism and to look forward, as opposed to a lot of the pessimism we've seen from some on the other side of the aisle. Yeah, I think so many people are so tired uh, period. <laughs> Just tired after everything that we've experienced over the last year. Um, so uh, w- on that topic of hope, uh, if you're a Republican like Jessica, you're hearing that and what everybody just said, you're feeling a lot of hope right now. Uh, if you're a Democrat listening to what just was said, you're not feeling so much hope, especially uh, if you believe that this is the party that, you know, supported insurrectionists. Uh, Chris Matthews, if, if you're advising Democrats, what do they do to avoid what you're talking about? Avoid a 30 point loss. Uh, do they have a chance to change the strategy at this point and come up with a different communication apparatus? Well, that's, look, two answers to that. First of all, um, midterms only change direction when something happens that's more important to the voter than their own personal condition, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Jack Kennedy really faced down the Russians and saved the world from a nuclear disaster, a, hard, a global catastrophe, or when the Democrat or Republicans went overboard in their charging of Bill Clinton over the Monica matter. They just seem to be going a little nutty, a little cotton mather, a little crazy. Who are you guys to be torturing and, and removing our president because he had a, a, a misbehavior situation with a young person? I think whatever the person this country is, we're not puritanical enough to go along with what they were up to, the, the prosecution in that case. So you have to have something that interrupts the people and say, my God, you got to say something. You only get one vote, so vote for the guy in office or vote against him. And they say, well, you know, after he just did that or had this done to him, I feel like voting for him. And, and then they do. It does happen. But, but I think the, the, the failure, let me do this. I don't know whether the failure to sell infrastructure as it could be sold, like 
You want your bridges to be safe when the school bus goes over at 3 o'clock this afternoon? Do you want to make sure the bridge connecting Queens and New York, these bridges are actually not always in question? Uh, when I was working for Tip O'Neill, I got a list of all the uh, bridges below safety code in Peoria from the chief engineer there. And Tip, the speaker, I surprised me, read it on the floor while Bob Michael, Republican leader, had to stand there and listen to it. The names and addresses of the bridges that were below safety code. That's the kind of aggressive a campaign you have to run to sell government spending. And whatever reason, they, and I have a suspicion, which I don't like. Well, I think it's going on. Why did they say $3.5 trillion? Why didn't they say $3, 3 billion a year? I'm sorry, $300 billion a year. Why didn't they say it's going to be 1.5% 1, 1 of GDP? Why, why did they try to reduce its, its, its number by all kinds of ways you do with economic and national income uh, models? You don't talk about the 10-year cost. You talk about the annual cost, and you give it as a percentage of GDP. That's what, If you want to make it sound small and you want to make it uh, digestible by the middle-of-the-road voter. But there's the part, the little conspiratorial on my part. If you want a big statement, if you want a Bernie-sized statement, and you want to say we're moving the Democratic Party from center-left to hard-left and we're doing it, screw you, we're doing it. And we're going to do it in box office numbers. We're going to say we're going social democratic like it, like it. We're going social democratic. We're no longer the Democratic Party. We're the social democratic party. Live with it. And we're going to show you that with a big number so big that when we win this fight, you're finished, you guys. You moderates are finished. And I got the feeling that the Democratic left isn't stupid. So why did they make it sound indigestible? Why did they make it so expensive? In terms of GDP, why did they give it? Why did they give us an annual number, a percentage number of GDP? Because they wanted. I, I am suspicious of why they wanted to be unpalatable. Why did they want it to hurt so much with the center and the right? And I have to come to the conclusion they're not stupid. They want to make a statement, and then only in the last several weeks, three, four weeks, have they stopped saying that. They want. They're now saying, well, okay, it's only an annual number, and uh, you know, it's a reasonable thing. It's not going to change everything. It's just reasonable things like child care and pre-K. And first of all, they never even told us what was in the package because they just want to make a statement. We're going left, buddy. It's very an odd way to sell something. You don't sell a car to a person by saying, I got a $60,000 car to sell you. Or don't even say it's a car. That's what they did with this package. They wouldn't even say it was in there. Why did they sell? You can sell things like family home leave. Clinton did. It was a mandated benefit in those days, but he did sell it. It was one of the most popular things he ever did. Um, but they didn't sell it like that. Child care means women can work outside the home. Generally, that's what it means. Working people can stop being impoverished and become working people. Get it? Make some cases like that, like we did with the dangerous bridges. But they didn't want to go that way. They wanted to say, this is a big macro lurch to the left. Tell, give me another explanation except stupidity. Well, I, do, you, do you think it was a big, to follow up with you, Chris, uh, do you think it was a strategic mistake to pair the two bills? Because there's another, you know, reality where Joe Biden passes uh, the bipartisan bill in the Senate, Mitch McConnell's voting for it, and then Nancy Pelosi quickly brings it to a vote in the House. Republicans and Democrats pass it. They do a bill, big bill signing thing. They go out and sell it, go to those bridges and ports. And for the last few months, Joe Biden looks like a winner who's accomplished something as compared to having it all about Joe Manchin versus, you know, Pramila Jayapal. Uh, do you think that that was a strategic mistake? Because Nancy Pelosi is brilliant and 
greatest speaker ever, perhaps, thought that she had to deal with 100 progressives. That's a huge, that's a half the, half the caucus. Look, David Garner was in Bob's business for a long time. Bob knows and respects him. David Garner comes out of New York. He got all the mayors elected in New York, all the governors, all Democrats. And he, must, he once said, replace the smell of decay with the smell of construction. We know what the smell of construction smells like. Dirt being moved. We know what it's in cement. We can smell it. That's why people, and dude, love watching. People love to be sidewalk superintendents, come down and look at the construction. We love it. It's very, it's, it's not just Ayn Rand, it's American. And, and building stuff that is going to last and pay for itself, like the interstate highway system, the National Defense Highway Act. Because I could see in the Autobahn and said, my God, they know how to do things over here in Germany. So, yeah, of course, I would have doubled the, the infrastructure bill and forgot the other stuff. You want to get some bipartisan? Build something. And by the way, it used to be Republicans on the Appropriations Committee were the big builders. They were the appropriators. Who were we kidding? You know, they weren't. It wasn't the Democratic lefties from the big city. It was the, the guys from the, the rural areas of Pennsylvania, places like that, were all the big. They were the appropriators. That's what we called them. So I agree. With, I'm, I think you're getting where I'm getting. Why don't you go with the sweet spot where everybody agrees and do it and get credit for it? The Democrats to this day get credit for the Civil Rights Bill, even though the Republicans really came through, you know, as a party. They really did come through, not the Southern Democrats. It was the Northern and Middle America, the Midwest Republicans that really came through in both houses for civil rights. But they blew it. They never got credit for it. But LBJ did. But I, I think Biden would have gotten all the credit, not Mitch. If he had done it bigger and centered on where they I think Manchin was, may have been right the other day. He said this country is basically a center-right country. I think it's a center country. If you look at the latest polling on number of progressives at all, you know, nobody wants to admit it, but boring. center sounds boring, but that's probably what we are, you know, probably. And the most centrist Democrat, Joe Biden, is the one who ended up winning the primary despite all of the attention on Twitter for so many other people. Well, because, away. I made the mistake of thinking he was finished, too, because I looked at Paul showed that two-thirds of the Democratic voters were uh, progressives. Well, even some progressives saw the danger of Bernie. <laughs> after, Nevada, after Bernie went so big in Nevada, I think they said, oh, my God, he's going to be the nominee. It's not going to work. We're going to lose to Trump. we got to make an adjustment here. And they went with Biden. And Jim Clyburn, of course, led the band. And they all got, got together to do that. At least they were practical. Why, were they, why aren't they practical when they get the government? They're practical winning. They won because they get practical. And they put Harris on the ticket to balance it out. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to win. They, they knew how to win then, David Challey. Yeah. And the question, though, is are they going to know how to win going into next year? I mean, what do you make of, of the legislative strategies that we have seen when it comes to this bipartisan infrastructure deal and that we are now seeing uh, when it comes to the Build Back Better reconciliation bill, which still is not a done deal. Yeah, and I think the news this week about inflation uh, is going to make that a, even a more complicated journey in the Senate than uh, it, it was already uh, destined to be. But you asked, was that the right strategy? I don't know if the, I don't know if there was another strategy available. I mean, uh, you, to Chris's point, they could have chosen not to do a social spending package at all, but I think that there would have been a huge uh, revolt on the left in Congress if, if that just got tossed out of the agenda. It was what Joe Biden ran on. I mean, he, did, he didn't just run on just doing infrastructure. He ran on all of these uh, programs. And, you know, you noted 
he was the moderate in the in the primary but as a general election nominee he was putting forth one of the most progressive policy agendas uh that we had seen in in some time uh and and i just so i don't know if it was a strategic decision in sort of tying those bills together because they thought that was the smartest way i think it was necessity of numbers and where the votes are and we saw throughout this whole process how the progressives led by Jayapal sort of exerted that influence throughout. You know, there's such a um, deficit of trust between the progressives and the moderates inside the Democratic Party that was just on display day in and day out throughout this process. And, and because of that, the, the progressives kept hanging on to this piece of leverage that they had to not go forward with that infrastructure bill so that they can ensure some social spending legislation uh, and climate change legislation would actually uh, come to fruition. They, the, the pressure got so intense, right, they finally caved on that and allowed that infrastructure bill uh, to move forward. Um, but again, with the promise, we'll see next week, Pelosi's going to have another vote. And, and then, the, you know, the whole show will move back over uh, to the Senate. But I, when, remember, Pelosi made clear from the get-go that these two bills were going to go together. And you remember Joe Biden, he made that mistake back in June where he came out and said he wasn't even going to sign infrastructure until he could sign both bills. And the Republicans working on infrastructure said, hey, 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 that's not what we agreed to. And uh, Biden had to walk that back in this lengthy uh, statement. Uh, but the bills never got detangled because the votes were sort of demanding that they not get uh, detangled. Uh, I, at the end of the day, I imagine, because it would be so devastating politically for the Democrats and demoralizing for the base, if they don't get this other piece through in some fashion, that there will be a Build Back Better plan of some sort that gets through. And quite frankly, it'll probably have some popular provisions in it uh, that they that they will go out and sell next year. But again, I think... Um, if, if people aren't feeling those provisions, if that's not their day-to-day -day economic experience, it's going to be really, really hard that we've seen so far for the White House and the Democrats to break through uh, with the selling of those plans. Yeah, I was I was out this morning with uh, Senator Alex Padilla of California at the port of uh, Long Beach, where he was talking about how the infrastructure bill gives $17 billion for the ports. But I asked him about the fight. I said, where are we at? Did you ever pull Joe Manchin off to the side and say, come on, man, <laughs> like, help me out here. And he said, look, we are going to get this done. We are going to pass something. It's going to happen uh, in very explicit terms, meaning something is going to get done. We'll see if he that turns out to be true. Uh, Jessica, let's talk about the Republican uh, messaging, though. Uh, Chris talked about that a little bit, about what could be the, the message that you hear. Um, you're one of the people that helped construct things like that. What is the message for Republicans in terms of their agenda they're trying to accomplish uh, if they get the House in 2023? Absolutely. I, I believe that, you know, Americans, we saw, you know, last week or two weeks ago now um, with both what happened in New Jersey, what happened in Virginia, certainly, um, but what happened all over the country, even here in La Mesa, California, we flipped a council seat um, from blue to red. And it was because the candidates were out there talking about issues that were important to people. They were incredibly frustrated with the leadership. And right now it is Democrat leaderships. And it's not because of the weather. It's because of these failed policies. And there's no better example of it than California, where you have strongholds on both of the House, uh, the legislative houses and the governor's seat for over a decade. 
Now, what we're seeing in California is a result of those failed policies. And I think voters are incredibly frustrated. And I think that some of those issues, I'd probably frame them a little bit differently. Um, number one, the economy. Number two is crime and public safety. And number three is education. And these are all things that Democrats, specifically here in California, have failed on. And so when we have the right candidates, as we saw in Virginia, as we saw in New Jersey with how close that race was and, and the Senate race, the Senate pro tem seat that we uh, talked about in uh, the New Jersey House, um, these are places where we have, when you have the right candidate with the right message talking about the things that are important to people and helping these candidates to also connect with voters, because that's what's most important. Um, it was Maya Angelou who said, uh, people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget the way you made them feel. And so showing up, talking to these parents and letting them know after spending a year and a half running uh, classrooms from your kitchen table, you should have a say in what's going on in your children's education, not you should have no part in it. Um, those are the things that are important to voters. You know, Democrats are, are trying to sort of lick their wounds about what happened in Virginia and learn for the next election. What did you learn, Jessica, from what happened with the recall? Because the Republicans really got routed on that night, the exact same percentage in 2018 when Governor Newsom ran versus 2021. What did you learn from that night and how do you apply that to the midterms? Well, I think what we just talked about, perfect examples, um, right candidate, right message matters, but also resources matter. And when you have a governor who can raise unlimited amounts of money um, and up to $100 million we saw spent on his side to get out his message, right? And you talked about it earlier. This governor did not run on his record. He did not run on the policies or successes here in California um, because by any milestone or benchmark that you look at, he has failed. He ran on a scare tactic campaign and against personalities. And so resources do matter. You have to have the right candidate, you have to have the right message, but you also have to have the resources to get your message out. Well, speaking of the right message, I think Ron Christie's message of fight on uh, is so well done. Um, whether it's pandering, it's, it's good politics for the crowd. So well done on, on that. We love that. Um, I, I'm curious, though, um, about the role of, of uh, the big guy we haven't talked about yet, Donald Trump, um, and what his role is on all of this. We don't know if he will be a prospective candidate um, by the time the, the midterms roll around next year. Um, obviously, he was talked about a lot in the California recall. He was talked a lot about in Virginia as well. Um, how does he play in terms of all of this? Well, Alex, let me just say, first of all, that's one of my most prized possessions that you see behind me, my fight on sign. What you don't see is the signatures on the back of that and the inscriptions from all my students when I spent uh, an awesome semester uh, USC. And it's just, it's a treasured thing, but yeah, it's a shameless plug. Had to do it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, <you> run. <laughs> yes. so here's where I kind of look at Donald Trump as both an albatross and an opportunity for Republicans. I think Glenn Youngkin was able to successfully thread the needle of looking at a very still popular among the populist base of the Republican party candidate who, whether you believe the election was stolen, as some of those folks say, or whether or not he still has a political future, and tapping into their anxiety, while at the same time not having Donald Trump set foot in the state. 
if you can find a way to run a sunny campaign to talk about your vision for the future and not have Donald Trump be the centerpiece of your campaign, I think you have a stronger chance of winning. Look, Republicans have a golden opportunity right now. We look at what happened in the previous election, and Joe Biden promised us that he was going to be a centrist, he was going to be competent, and that he was going to right the ship, if you will, of the state of affairs. What we found was a president who believed himself to be FDR. We found a president who seemingly was not competent on immigration, not competent on withdrawal from Afghanistan, and not competent of addressing the kitchen table issues that Americans are facing. So if Republicans can run strong candidates, as Jessica pointed out, with strong personalities without getting involved in sort of the mud that Trumpism uh, has offended many of the centrists and independents who did go to vote for Yunkin, I think the Republicans look really good not only next year, but heading into 2024 as well. I would just to jump in and add to Ron, I, it may be tougher for Donald Trump to keep himself out of the yes. spotlight in 2022 than it was uh, for him to do so in Virginia. I mean, he's going to want to be involved in a lot of these contests. And um, th- so that could change the equation of why Virginia doesn't just uh, repeat itself as a carbon copy uh, across the country next year. Yeah, I mean, re- recently we had, David, to, to pick up on that, we had Adam Schiff on The Issue Is, and, and I asked him if he thought Trump would run again. And he said he thinks that Trump can't help himself from running again because he's not going to want to see Mike Pence or Nikki Haley or somebody else get all that attention. He's going to want to be at the center of the stage. And if he really, you know, continues to insert himself, not really as a former president, but as a potential future president, how does that change things uh, for, you know, these potential swing districts if, you know, there is such a thing as swing districts anymore? Yeah, I mean, just in the way we were just describing, um, the concern, I just went through like how much the independents and the suburban voters swung uh, in Virginia. If Donald Trump is out there and, you know, we have just had reporting at CNN uh, this week that some of his advisors are really trying to convince him like, there are places you can be very helpful. And there are some places, you know, Mr. President, that it would be less helpful for you to be involved with. And so stay away from those. But if he is going to be a dominant figure nationally in the midterm elections, that means that in some of these districts, uh, that that middle may not move as dramatically, potentially, uh, to to the Republican candidate, and it could make some of these closer. Again, this may be one of the, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier, um, the economy may be better. We don't know. We'll see. This also may be one of those factors that mitigates what could be like a tsunami election for Republicans into something less than that, if indeed Donald Trump is so front and center in a way that continues to repel the middle the way that we saw in 2018 and and 2020. He's not on the ballot. He's not in office. It may not have the effect to that degree, but it could be a factor in a way that it wasn't in the Virginia race. David, you're the numbers guy uh, here looking at all the data in terms of the Senate, because we've talked a lot about the House. The Senate, really important uh, when it comes to Supreme Court justices uh, declaring war. I mean, so many different aspects. Where are we at there? How, how do you see things there? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, earlier I, I gave you the five states to watch. I think that the on the Democratic side, uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona, Raphael Warnock in Virginia, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada are 
the three most vulnerable Democratic incumbents. Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire has rough numbers, but again, Chris Nunu not getting in that race is is clearly good news for her uh, up there in New Hampshire. But that'll be a race that gets lots of attention too. And then on the offensive side, uh, you know, Democrats, I am sure, on their wish list have places like you know, defeating Marco Rubio with Val Demings in Florida or the open seat in North Carolina or the open seat in Ohio. I think those states are more red than they are purple. Uh, so I don't know that those are good. But, but uh, in Pennsylvania, there's an open seat there. Obviously, that's a big opportunity for Democrats to flip a Republican seat. And that's going to be a fascinating primary on, on both sides. And in Wisconsin, we're waiting. This will be the last big sort of, I think, incumbent announcement decision. Uh, we're waiting to hear from Ron Johnson if he's going to be uh, running for uh, re-election again in Wisconsin. But clearly, uh, either way, whether Johnson, the incumbent, is running or it's an open race, that's going to be a real battleground uh, of a race in Wisconsin. Uh, it is, in a 50-50 Senate, I, it's hard to imagine at the end of the day um, one party having more than 53 seats at the end of the night anyway. So it's not like we're talking about a Senate that is going to, it may flip party control. It's not going to give 60 seats uh, to the to the majority either way. It's still going to be a pretty closely divided uh, United States Senate at the end of the day. Although we've learned how important those committee chairs uh, can be and everything else that goes with being in the majority. Um, Chris, you talked about potential three issues that the Republicans will will run on. If you had to pick three issues for the Democrats that they should run on, what what would those be? Well, it'd be January 6th, especially if they're able to carve out some hard facts. I mean, the mistake I made when I was on hardball, I admit it, we were always trying to connect the dots in terms of Russian intervention in the election of 16. We were never able to put it all together. And the prosecution was either. It was a lot of fishy stuff. It smelled like trouble. It certainly looked like a pattern. But we never were able to put that nailed down. These are proofs that they work together at the highest level. This was a cabal between Trump and the Russians. We couldn't nail it down. And I think this time we can nail it down. I think we have to nail down what happened at the Willard Hotel, what happened in terms of coordinating that rally and all the machinations in trying to get uh, those state, uh, rather to get Mike Pence to basically refuse to ratify a number of states. This was a real attempt to overthrow an election. If they can really prove that going into 24, not just 22, I think that's an historic problem with the Republican Party, that they had their hands dirtied by that. Now, right now, that's all they have. I think. That's all they have because, I mean, it, it, for, you know, for an average person that, that sees the price of gas going up, that it's yeah. more expensive to get a Thanksgiving turkey, uh, that, it, you know, they're annoyed at their, their kids, you know, had to go through this experience at school. All of these issues, you know, that there are homeless people in the streets here in California. There's concern about public safety with the police potentially being defunded. You know, are those people focused on January 6th or are they focused on I'm not making enough money to pay for the increasing price of stuff? Well, the thing I hear about is the craziness of the left. You mentioned San Francisco, the inability to deal with the homeless, which is a more general problem than the liberal cities, but it is a problem in all, almost all the liberal cities. This $950 discount for shoplifting is a joke. Right. That's what everybody's talking about. It's a joke. You don't get charged with it, with theft, with that amount of money. Uh, 22 uh, Walgreens shut down in San Francisco. I mean, this. what are, are these people crazy? We used to laugh about Berkeley and having a foreign policy. But that was harmless to other people. Someone of a bunch of lefties at Berkeley uh, have a, a resolution every week. Who cares? 
It's just people talking. But what happens when you have a shutdown in, in commercial business? I mean, you're making fun of the little storekeeper running his operation 20, 24 hours a day. I mean, people go, are these people crazy, these lefties? And I think uh, the whole woke thing, it misdirected, overdone, and those things, I think bothers some people. I think it's a term that has to be very carefully analyzed, not just thrown back at the, at the left. But I think there's some things about people just don't like being told what to think, uh, how to talk, and all that. I mean, I think it's all part of this uh, problem that Nancy has to talk. She said, welcome to my world. That was a great quote last week. Welcome to my world. In other words, she has to deal with Jayapal. She's got to deal with all. Of, but they all represent those 10 or 20 cities that are absolutely not. They've never seen a general election. I mean, Tim O'Neill I worked for, he never had a general election. What are we talking about here? They just, you win the primary, and then 30 years later, you, you retire. And, and that's what their conditions are. So they don't know anything about basing general election voters in, in St. Paul or Seattle or, or, or Queens. And yet they're, they're dictating what the, what the party, and you're supposed to be someone like Wild up there in Lehigh, and you're going, or Bethlehem, and you're going, wait a minute, this is the key to this state. As goes the, the, the Lehigh Valley, so goes Pennsylvania. And they're telling me i got to have the same politics as Queens. Would I rather have the same politics as West Virginia? Safer for me. Safer for me to follow a guy who's been a real trouble for the Democrats, Manchin, than go the direction of uh, a, t- a tough neighborhood, or not tough neighborhood, a changing neighborhood that's going very left in um, in Queens. It just my people are not like people in Queens. They just think, don't think like that. And uh, look, I thought Trump. I think Trump is so much smarter than the left thinks he is. He understood you don't touch Social Security. Understood you don't touch Medicare. You don't mess with the sa- the real safety net from sixty four, sixty five. You don't mess with that stuff. As George Will said. The Americans are conservative. They want to conserve the New Deal. They also want to conserve the great society much. So he never messed with that. And he said, get rid of stupid wars, and then I'm going to fight the Chinese. So if he wasn't such a bad guy on COVID, if he wasn't such a bad guy on COVID, he would have won re-election because he was so close to getting. He and Bobby Casey have the same basic policies. Protect people who live in places like Scranton, Erie, Wilkesboro. They're not going anywhere for this next winter. They're going to stay where they live, and they're going to be cold, and they need oil, and they need the basics. But they're not British Labor Party people. They're not a bunch of lefties who hate rich people. They don't know any billionaires. They don't know how they live, fortunately. They don't know what the fight's about, that grievance fight. And he understood that. They just don't want their kids sent off stupid wars like in Afghanistan. And uh, and basically, he want, they want someone to fight for jobs at home so their kids don't have to drive, move 1,000, 3,000 miles away for a good job. That's what they want. They want their kids close enough to visit them and enough to live on. Trump understood that. Bobby Casey understands that all this other stuff that they fight over is not going to turn an election, but that stuff will. And that's why we're going to have very close elections with Trump coming back into this, as crazy as he is, because he has he's crazy like a fox. He knows what you don't mess with. And Ron Christie, to that point, if you go to Trump rallies, and I've been to many of them covering them, a lot of the people there think that he's an asshole. They just think he's their asshole and that he's fighting for them. Uh, and, and there's a, uh, you know, if you went to a Bernie Sanders rally, a lot of people think that he's their asshole. <laughs> uh, and, and there's something similar in the, in the crowd dynamics in, in that, but there are some voters that feel like some of what the Democrats have been focusing on right now, uh, is not fighting for them, that they feel like they don't have a home there. 
So how do the Democrats change that messaging to convince people, I understand your problems? Look, I, I think there's so many similarities between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in the last election of a swath of the electorate who believe that the elites are out of touch. They don't care about the kitchen table issues that we spoke of earlier. Look, Chris Matthews said this brilliantly, right? Trump understood inherently what you don't touch. You don't mess with the third rail, which is Social Security. You don't talk about some of this crazy stuff. You don't cater to the hard blue districts where, as Chris pointed out, you know, you win the primary and then you sit around for 30, 40 years and you retire. If I were a Democrat, which I'm not, if I were a Democrat, I would focus on the issues that Chris just articulated, right? Hey, look, this immigration thing, this is a big deal. We need to seal the southern border. I understand the fact that inflation is driving up the cost of milk, of eggs, of gasoline. And by the way, Christmas and Thanksgiving are going to be a whole hell of a lot more expensive this year. But you know what? I understand that. I hear you. And if you put me in office and you give me the privilege and the trust and the opportunity, I will address those issues. I won't talk about all this climate nonsense with Bredevon, whoever it is. I'm going to talk about what's going on in your town, in your county, in your community. That's something not only for Democrats, but I think Republicans that we have an opportunity to seize on. And I'm sure Jessica is, is doing all that she can in my beloved home state of California to ensure that we focus on the issues that people care about rather than the pie in the sky things of, gee, wouldn't it be nice to save the planet 100 years from now? But Jessica, how do you, though, respond to what Chris said uh, about January 6th? We've got this January 6th commission, which uh, we understand will probably come out more details about that day. We'll see who answers these subpoenas and who doesn't. Um, but if that's a concern on people's minds, I don't want to support the party that didn't go for democracy. Some voters may see it that way. What do you say to those voters? Well, I think that Chris is also right in the fact that when you're not addressing the kitchen table issues, that is going to affect. And so we need to make this uh, election on our terms. We get to decide what the message is and you have to decide what's more important to you. Um, you talked about visiting the port earlier today. Every single time I fly in and out of LAX, I get to see firsthand what's happening there. I was in South Carolina a couple weeks ago. A big sign in the Delta Terminal says one out of every 10 jobs in South Carolina is at the port. And you know what? There wasn't a single ship waiting. We have the governor of Florida saying, send your ships over here because we can fix these problems. And I think at the end of the day, that's what's going to matter to voters. They are going to care about those kitchen table issues. And as long as we can keep the uh, message on what we want to talk about, I think we win. But can, sorry, I just, I just, but Jessica, do you think that the former president's uh, sort of addiction to wanting to relitigate the 2020 election complicates your party's ability to do that? No more so than, you know, when Chris Matthews was talking about, you know, Russian interference with the 2016 election. I think that what we have tried to do, especially at the National Party, but particularly here in California, is help people to have confidence in their elections. And what we have done on the election integrity side of things, um, it's not about, you know, I think that many county clerks, I think many um, secretaries of states did themselves a disservice in 2020 by not shining light on the process. And it wasn't because stuff was necessarily done wrong, but if nothing's being done wrong, you shouldn't want people to watch you. 
the transparency issue. And so this past year in 2020, we started early with election integrity. So in those four targeted congressional seats that we picked up, that we ran in and picked up, um, we were able to have very good confidence in those votes that were making being made. So 60% of ballots that went out in 2020 in California were watched by lawyers, volunteers, um, and staff on the ground. When we went into the recall in 2021, we had 98.5% of the ballots going out being watched by lawyers, staff, and volunteers, whether they were poll workers or poll watchers. We recruited and trained over 2,100 volunteers to observe. We developed relationships with county clerks in every single county. And that meant that people had faith in the elections, regardless of the fact that it didn't turn out our way. Election integrity is incredibly important and people should have faith in their ballots, whether it was 2016 or 2020. And I know you were you were somebody that supports the idea of voting by mail. But is it really fair, though, to compare what Democrats said about 2016 to what Donald Trump has been saying about 2020? Yes, Hillary Clinton uh, raised some questions about it after the election. And there were Democrats that raised questions about it and investigated it. But Hillary Clinton attended Donald Trump's inauguration. Uh, Barack Obama welcomed him into the White House and shook his hand and, and gave him credibility there. Uh, there was uh, no widespread uh, chance about fraud. There was no uh, riot at the Capitol. Uh, the, 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 the way that the parties handled those two things are different. Even looking at Virginia after the election, no Democrat of note came out and said that this election is fraudulent. President Trump is still talking about the last election being fraudulent. I think that the parties worked incredibly hard so that we have faith in our elections going forward. Okay. <laughs> Great. Chris? Let me just say something. I think uh, both parties, and I think Trump has really been uh, unpatriotic and not conceding. I think that's always been part of our unwritten constitution. The losers admit it. That's, Jack Kennedy got Nixon, met, met with him down in Key Biscayne and said, you won. It, 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 Kennedy knew he had to get Nixon to say it, and he got Nixon to say it. And I think it's very important that the loser says so, because only then the 40% who are mad about the election, 49% who are mad about the election, say, okay, we lost, and we move on. But I think there's a couple of things that Democrats have to do, and I think they're doing it. Voter ID cards. I didn't like it because I thought it was a quickie way of screwing the poor people, the, the minorities. But I think after four years of debating it, it's time for people to get their ID cards. And it's up for the local p- political machines that still exist, like in, here in Philadelphia. Get out in the streets and get these people uh, ID cards. Get them, you have plenty of time before the election in 22. Get them ID card. You take them to DOT. Committeemen, ward leaders, you take them and get them their ID cards. Get it done so people who vote show the card like you do for me- Medicare or getting on an airplane. you got to show a card that that's you. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong. The other thing is set up election rules so that we have a clear idea of who won election night. I mean, make it like the Academy Awards. You don't go to bed to find out who won the thing. That's normal because if it stretches two or three days or four or five days or a week, everybody assumes there's some hanky-panky going on. Everybody. Why is it taking so long to count the votes? Somebody's up to something somewhere. That's why I think it's very important that like place like Pennsylvania begin to count the absentee ballots before election day. Get it going. Get it so at 9 o'clock at night, you have a pretty good shot of saying who won Pennsylvania. The same in the other states. I really do think election night, uh, concession speeches, and clear results is very important to the American process. It's cultural. It's not written in the law. But I'll tell you, that as long as we go with this, this loosey-goosey, 
10 days after the election, your ballot can come in. What are we talking about? Who wins in that situation? Get the ballots in and get the ID cards in people's hands so we can stop talking about this stuff. That's you think you're I think you're right. Stop talking about whether the election's fair or not by making it obviously fair. And that includes a concession speech by Trump. And I don't think we'll ever get one. Just saying, we never really got an end. And why did he say Obama was an illegal immigrant for all those years? He was an illegal immigrant. That was racist. It was purposely trying to get the racist vote. That's who he was after. Who else would you be after? Whose vote would you be seeking? If you went out and said the Democratic candidate for president is an illegal immigrant who snuck in the country through Kansas and Indonesia and Hawaii and somewhere, you know, his white mother somehow did all this. So their husband, her son, 35 years later, would be president. And then she names him Hussein Obama. Are you crazy? This is what this is. We got to stop the craziness. Are people are really going to stop trusting in our elections? And trust is such a big issue. Uh, David, I want to go to a, a question from uh, the audience. It's from Dave Gutman. Is it the Democrats messaging or the GOP and media that's framing the message? What's sort of driving some of this? But he pointed out that there weren't a lot of elected Democrats that said defund the police. Uh, Joe Biden never said defund the police. But the message was that Democrats were for defunding the police. And, you know, that's because some Democrats said they were for that. And so that allowed the Republican Party to paint with a very broad brush. And you're right, Joe Biden, till he was blue in the face, was saying throughout the campaign, he does not support defund the police at all. Um, You just saw you're seeing this with Eric Adams in New York right now uh, going through uh, this as well. Uh, The words matter. Rhetoric matters. It is uh, a packaging and selling and and, uh, Democrats, um, you know, I think you saw when it comes to the actual vote, like look at that vote that happened in Minneapolis, uh, that failed. They didn't get rid of their police department as is and, and recreate it. So it's not where the voters are, even the majority of the Democratic voters are, but it is clearly um, a uh, a marketing and message problem that the Democrats need to uh, overcome on that issue. Yeah, and a question, Ron, um, from anonymous attendee. Uh, he writes that uh, Black, or he or she, writes that Black, Latino, Muslim, and gay voters voted for Trump in higher numbers in 2020 than 2016. Why is that? How does that happen? Um, And what should both parties do about that? I think to Anonymous, uh, if you look at Republicans, uh, traditionally, we talk to Black people like they're Black people, or we talk to people of color like they're people of color, and we don't talk to them like they're constituents. I think Donald Trump spoke at very basic uh, terms of, if you elect me, I'm going to have a stronger economy. If you elect me, we're going to secure the border. If you elect me, we're, these are the sort of kitchen table issues, as Jessica and Chris and I keep saying, that we're going to focus on. And people who were reluctant to give Republicans a chance, I think, in the last election, gave Republicans a chance with Donald Trump in 2016. And many re- Republicans were pleasantly surprised, Republicans of color, of seeing unemployment rates going down for Latinos, going down for African-American constituencies. And we need to be a broader party. I mean, if you want to talk about people of color, if you want to talk about gender issues, Republicans can play on this field, which traditionally haven't. And we haven't spoken about it, but we need to. We need to have more people in our party who look like them as opposed to the traditional older white guy. 
Jessica, I know you 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 don't look like the traditional Republican Party head. <laughs> You're the first uh, Latina to do this in this state of California. Um, what is the message in terms of talking to more minority voters? We have to show up for too long, particularly here in California. Um, we had seated these different communities throughout our state to the Democrat Party. And as uh, Ron mentioned, uh, they weren't living their best lives because of these policies that California Democrats had been you know, bringing to them. And in fact, by any milestone or benchmark that you, look, you looked at, it would say the exact opposite. But Democrats showed up and Democrats made them feel like they cared about their problems. So showing up is critical. And I think at the national level, um, our chairwoman has done a fantastic job of that. Um, earlier this year, uh, we opened up the first Asian American community center uh, in the country um, through the RNC. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't look like a typical campaign headquarters. This is a place where you can get legal advice, uh, job training, uh, you know, connecting people and talking to them about issues that are important to them within their community. Um, and they've done this within black communities, within Latino communities all over our country. Um, this is critical. Just last week, um, our chairwoman launched the Pride Coalition. Um, these are big things for the, for the Republican Party. And we have to show up and we have to make room for everybody in our tent. Um, Republicans, in my opinion, probably agree on about 95% of the issues. And if we focus on those 95% of the things, we can get a lot accomplished. Uh, Chris, I want to go to a question from Kimberly Bliss, uh, who says that Trump talks at the middle class and, and talks about how he helps them. She feels that his his actions don't really help the middle class um, and saying, why? Why is that? And, and, and I guess sort of getting to the point, why is it that especially some of these minority groups th- that maybe, you know, how do, how do Democrats better communicate to, to people like that? Well, I want to get back to one thing about uh, Hispanics, and uh, it's because that's what the border issue really is when you get down to it, the way people react to it, positively and negatively. I think if I were Trump, and I keep thinking, how would I fix this guy? Well, it takes, I don't think he has good motives to start with, but one thing I would do is show up at naturalization ceremonies a lot. I would make a point of saluting American citizenship, especially if there's a lot of Hispanic people in that room with you who are swearing allegiance to our flag. and obviously emotional about it. It's a very emotional thing. It's, I love our country. Those people do too, who have just become Americans. And uh, it would be a positive way of saying, I love being an American citizen. I'm not on the dreamer list. I'm not here illegally. I'm not hopeful. I am an American and proud of it. And make sure it's not an ethnic thing. I just get it away from that. I think that's one thing. I think the Democrats make a big mistake when they look at the Republican Party. They love to cartoonize them and say they're all billionaires. Billionaires and millionaires. Well, let me just tell you, I grew up in a Republican family, and we were not, we were classic middle middle. And it's not that the Republicans are made up of rich people; they're not. Overwhelmingly, Republicans are middle income people, because that's what they want. They don't want big government. They don't want an overwhelming big brother or whatever. They hate communism. They hate socialism in most cases. They don't want a big state. They don't want Denmark, like Bernie pronounced it, Denmark. They don't want Scandinavia. They don't want all that government. They don't want that cradle to grave stuff. They want to be relatively self-reliant. They want to drive their own car. They don't want to take the subway. They don't, they don't want to live in a house, not an apartment. We all know this. This is the cowboy culture we live in. Republicans get that. Democrats fly from that. They don't understand the basic American doesn't want to put on a mask. Now, they'll put them on, like I do, 
and I don't resist it, but I resent it. I don't like putting a mask on. Some people seem to like putting them on because it shows their purity or something. I mean, people drive around in cars with them on. I go, what are you doing in that car to need a mask on? There's nobody else in the car but you. Why do you have the mask on? So some people are so dutiful, and they like being dutiful. They like being regimented. Most Americans hate being regimented. And there's a lot of reasons. And the Republican Party, is, as been very smart of the years, understand that 80% or not, uh, at least of its members are not rich people. They just don't like big government. They don't like uh, 1984, the imagery of 1984. They don't like being told what to do. They're, nobody likes being bossed around except a strange person. I mean, why do you like being bossed around by a government? Democrats tend to hate corporations. They hate rich people. They're not all. Some do. Uh, but they definitely hate big corporations and that sort of economic power of the wealthy. I, and I, I can understand that. But Republicans have a much guttier sense of what they know. They don't like big government telling them what to do. And that's really the heart of it. So if you're a Democrat, you're trying to get those people to say, you know what? Government, if it's done right, can be really good. When, they, when the men, mostly men, came back from World War II, Roosevelt said, you know what? We've got to do something for these guys who beat the Nazis and the, Jap- and the Japanese Empire. We've got to give them something they don't have and give something to the country it doesn't have. How about we create a middle class? And the way to do that, these people coming back in their mid-20s, get them go to engineering school. They don't want liberal arts. Get an engineering school. You know, let's get something behind my, my dad. Did. Let's get them something that gives them a chance to move into the suburbs and live a little better life and not have to live with the parents in the basement or live in the same row, row house. I'm telling you, I know this whole life. Me, I got to go to college on, UG, on National Defense Education Act loans because we had Sputnik. We saw a threat. And the American people said, you know what? We better meet that threat. We better get these people in college taking serious, uh, serious disciplines. Same thing with interstate commerce, interstate uh, uh, highway system. We rebuilt. Imagine if we had to go from county road to county road from L.A. to San Francisco. I mean, at, or, or on the East Coast, on, there was no 95. You had to go through speed trap after speed trap in the Carolinas. Nobody would be doing it now. Huge semis going up all night long. Big trucking. It's huge. Our commerce is incredibly on the road and it's fantastic this is we have a gdp that keeps booming and and you got to tell them that no government is not a clown operation it's wonderful if it's done right and medicare was done right and social security was done right and our educational system in california in many ways is a role for the country because everybody can make some use of it you go to community college and take photography you can go to berkeley and be genius or ucla or davis schools you get all you get something out of the government, you know, and um, that's smart. I, I think we got to sell government again. And we don't do it with a Looney Tune package of goodies that we don't even know what the goodies are because you keep changing the goodies every week. What's in the package? You know, child care is important. Uh, Pre-K is important. We know that Head Start has been a big Barbara Bush thing. So she was always big on Head Start, you know. So we know this stuff, but they don't sell it. They're selling, uh, why don't you buy it? something for $60,000. I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> I can't even say what the car is. American, you know how Americans buy cars? They want to know what's it got. Is it loaded? Does it, has it got power steering? Does it got power? Does it have good air conditioning? Does it got Sirius XM radio? Does it have GPS? They want to know every detail of what they spend 60000 bucks on or 40000 That's what they do. That's called shopping for a car. And what do the Democrats do? They try to sell you a car, but they don't even say it's a car. They just said it's a big spending thing. Am I, am I the only one who thinks like this? It's crazy what they've done with this bill. Crazy. Trust Jayapal. 
to define for you what you need. Let her tell you what she needs from Washington to Seattle. She'll tell you. No, she won't. The squad's not going to tell you what you need. I mean, maybe she should tell some people, but it's not going to sell the people that are voting in this country. It's not going to sell to West Virginia or to Arizona if you want to sell it to those two. They're the best salesmen we could ask for. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny that you brought up the idea, though, of, of legal immigration as something that Trump should go to. I remember being with Trump in 2015 at the USS Iowa, the big battleship, and he was being protested by a lot of immigration activists off to the side. But then on the ship, people that came to support him was a huge number of le- le- uh, legal immigrants uh, from Latino uh, you know, countries uh, who were there to support him saying, we worked hard to go through this system. We don't want people crossing uh, ahead of us in line. We were the ones in line. And they were some of the most passionate Trump supporters uh, in, wow. that, in that I moment. think that's true of later generation. I think that's true of generation people from, from uh, Latin America. And uh, I don't want to speak for them, but I, I do believe uh, if you're going to have, if you're going to deal with the border, you got to deal with the border. And I don't hear anything down there, but a nice Yiddish term, Michigas. <laughs> oh, I see Michigan. Something that Governor Newsom said yesterday. I love the, the Yiddish terms for us uh, Jews to get in there. Um, quickly, uh, I want to give everybody a chance to tell me something I don't know, which is an old bit from the Chris Matthews show and Hardball uh, at the end. But before we do that, I, I just saw that there's a bit of breaking news uh, that Steve Bannon was just indicted on uh, two counts of contempt of Congress uh, for refusing to testify in front of the January 6th commission. Does anybody have any quick sort of take on that or reaction to that, how, what they think about that? I say good, candidly. I mean, I'm a lawyer. You, you can't thumb your nose from a lawfully issued subpoena just because you don't want to go. And just because Trump says that he has executive privilege, which he doesn't, and the, you know, the current president has that privilege that he can exercise for himself or his staff, it shows, regardless of party, that the rule of law is what, what is more important here rather than what Mr. Bannon and Mr. Trump have to say about it. And I think just from a practical point of view, you know, with Mark Meadows refusing to uh, come and uh, testify today, you're seeing now what the Department of Justice is going to do with these potential future contempt of Congress referrals, which is that it looks like they're going to get uh, grand juries to indict. And so that may change the calculus of uh, how people uh choose to participate. Interesting. Um, so I want to do one wrap around sort of bottom line question before we get to tell me something I don't know. So we, we talked a lot about the, the midterms and the, the narrative and who's going to control the narrative and which issue matters the most. Uh, I, I want to go around first for the Republicans. If the Republicans can make this the issue, they win. David Chalian. The economy. Jessica Patterson. The economy. Rod Christie. Same for me. Chris Matthews. Sure. Although I think they've done a really good job with a critical race theory, because even though it isn't taught, the way that they have been able to, the conservatives, people on the right have been able to use the school issue has changed American politics. First of all, they used, they've been using since the beginning, basically, the Brown case since 1954. They've used that politically. Desegregation. Uh the uh, prayer in school thing, all those Southern white people are going to school, studying, reciting the King James Bible at school. There's no private school down there. There's no Catholic school. It's all public school. And they got it. And then again, they went after the schools. The Republicans are very, well, not Republicans, the right wing Dixiecrats did the same thing. They know if you can get the issue into the schools, which every kid, you're trying to create your kids. You meet them when they're born, but you try to shape them. 
You, that's your one big thing in life is teach them about sports. Teach them about life. Teach them about girls and their boys. Teach them about what you can. Teach them about life. And here you find out that somebody down there somewhere is teaching them something else and using your kids for social experiments, you go crazy. And so I think it's not just about race. It's playing with your kids and what they're up to, trying to change them to what they want your kids to become when they grow up. A lot of it's ideology, everything else. They don't, people don't want their kids to be different than them so much they don't recognize them. And it's a sensitive point. It began with prayer in school and then it went through desegregation. And then it got into uh, this thing uh, about critical race theory. I think it's a hot issue. I think it's a pressure point. I think if, the, if they find out a way to do it, it isn't clearly racist or racist at all. They got to get to the point. Of, these big government types here think they have a right to your kids. Right. They want your kids. I'm telling you, watch it. It ain't going away. I love that. that was the quick answer. Okay. Uh, <laughs> real uh, if, if the Democrats are able to win, this is going to be the top issue. David. I mean, I don't want to give the same answer, I guess, but it's certainly, if the Democrats are able to win, it's going to be because people are feeling an economic revival that they had not yet felt. But I, I would say if Democrats are able to win, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm sticking with the economy. Okay, <laughs> Jessica. It won't be on their record. It'll be about President Trump on January 6th. Ron? Uh, I'm going to stick with David. I think it's the economy. And I'm also going to, to piggyback on Jessica and say that they're going to try to relitigate Trump again, uh, which is not going to be a winning issue for them. And Chris? They can't get away from it. They've got to fight this for the country. This is patriotic. They have to challenge what Trump did uh, in January 6th. They have to go after it. Somebody's got to take that responsibility. Yeah, it, it, I just want to underline, it's beyond politics, as Chris said. Actually, both parties in this country should be fighting to save democracy. Uh, it yeah. shouldn't just be one party. That's right. And so, uh, and lastly, um, it, for those of us that were longtime viewers of Hardball and the Chris Matthews show, he had this amazing segment uh, called Tell Me Something I Don't Know, uh, where he would have scoops and predictions from his panel, um, get away from the typical headlines that everybody is talking about and bring something to the table that nobody's heard of before. Um, so now we're turning the tables. I've always wanted to do this. Uh, Chris, we're going to have you go last. Uh, but uh, David Chalian, tell me something I don't know. Well, I'm going to make use of the fact that we have a newsmaker with Jessica here on the panel. And I want to ask, Jessica, are you going to be the next national chair of the Republican National Committee? I am incredibly focused on being the chair of the California Republican Party. Trust me, that's a lot of work. So that was not a no, if anybody's asking. And usually when it's not a no, that means yes. But we'll see. <laughs> Jessica Patterson, tell me something I don't know. And if you want to break that news right now, we're game. The House majority will run right through California. What you do know is that California was responsible for bringing more new Republicans to the House of Representatives than any other state in the nation in 2020. We have up to 11 targets that are coming through our state this, this coming 2022. So uh, we will make sure that we have a Speaker of the House that is not only from California, but is also a Republican. That, of course, would be Kevin McCarthy. Ron Christie. I know you got to do this a lot on his show. Tell me something I don't know. I did. Uh, I tell you, you look at the facade that all the Republicans are unified behind Donald Trump. Behind the scenes, there's a lot of angst and a lot of anxiety about uh, Trump getting into this race. There will be a lot of people who will go to the former president and encourage him not to get in to allow the Republicans a chance to have a viable shot of beating whoever the Democratic nominee is. 
But ultimately, I think Trump runs and it's too much for his ego to not have a, a rematch uh, against Joe Biden, who he believes stole the show. And finally, Chris Matthews, tell me something I don't know. Well, this is from another area, but my other area of interest is movies. And this is about a movies about a movie that will change your life if you see you get to see it. Belfast. I saw it last night. Kenneth Branagh's movie. It's about sectarian sectarian struggle in Ireland, Northern Ireland, where my grandmother came from, who was a total orange woman, a Protestant, who, and my dad came from that family, and the other part of the family is Irish Catholics, and they got together, and I'm a product of that. I'm going to tell you, the feeling you get coming after seeing this movie, and you must see this movie, is about we fight over religion, and it's crazy. And, and then this is about, it's totally destructive and crazy, but I'll tell you, it's a beautiful movie. And I, I, I'm overwhelmed. It's about life and about the conflicts that people create for themselves. The, and the bad guys stir them up, you know. And it's just like you're going to come out of that movie saying, my God, I know who the good guys are. I know who the bad guys are. And the ones that use religion or anything else to stir people against each other are the bad guys. And the ones who want peace are the good guys, the good women. It's astoundingly good movie. That's all I get to say. I love it. You guys did not disappoint. What a fantastic panel. Our thanks to Chris Matthews and David Chalian and Jessica Patterson and Ron Christie. And a big, big thanks to Bob Shrum and Mike Murphy and Kami and the whole team at the USC Center for the Political Future. Uh, we all love what you guys are doing, uh, which is trying to have a civil, smart conversation with people from lots of different perspectives. That's exactly what this is. Uh, Bob, thank you for including all of us uh, and to all that are watching, fight on. Bob, back to you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for a terrific panel. Uh, for the Democrats who feel very discouraged listening to this panel, I would say we do have a year to go. I think David's right if people perceive that the economy is strong, if inflation is abated, if COVID is under control, you might have a different outcome. Uh, and Democrats will run against Republicans on child care, pre-K, and COVID, assuming that that situation is is being resolved in a way that make that make that will make people feel more comfortable living a normal life, uh, you know, I wonder if a lot of what's said about Biden now isn't similar to what was said about Biden before the primaries and in the early primaries, where he was totally written off and he just held to his playbook, just kept going campaign didn't break up internally. There weren't recriminations. So I think they'll just stick with the strategy. Anyway, that's my little addition to this. On behalf of the Center for the Political Future, I want to express gratitude to all our panelists, to our audience today. It was an enlightening and incisive day. So I'll say goodbye, good luck, and good health to everybody. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future. That's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.